Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you. Feel free to grab that, and you could turn to page 862. And we're going to look at Matthew 9, 1 through 17 as we continue our series on Matthew 5 through 10. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. If this is your first time looking at a Bible, the 9, when I say 9, 1, 9 is the chapter number, that's the big number, and 1 is a small verse number. Okay, so chapter 9, verse 1, and apparently there's no 1, but it starts in 2 in terms of small numbers. So um, chapter 9 of Matthew. Hear then God's word. So he, that's Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil thoughts in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, Get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be, be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with, with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, that's our prayer that your word, the word of Christ, would dwell richly among us, that you would fill us by your spirit to see the glories of our King, the glories of our Lord Jesus, 
and that in seeing his glory, we would, we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next. This only comes by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't want to waste our time. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Unless the Lord oversees and preaches the sermon, the preacher preaches in vain. And unless the Lord gives us ears to hear the sermon, the hearers hear in vain. So Lord, work among us. Help us. We are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, and helpless apart from you. So help us with your infinite power and your infinite love and enthusiasm to show us your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everybody wants to be free. Whether Christian or non-Christian, sometimes people don't want to be Christian because they want to be free. They want to be free from restrictions. They want to be free from oppression. Everybody wants to be free from oppression because oppression is restrictive and we are meant to enjoy this life as image bearers in this world. But one of the things that really gets us is not just other people or other things restricting us, but it's actually stuff that comes from within. And what I mean in particular is guilt. Guilt can oppress us. Guilt can ruin our day. Guilt can ruin our week. Guilt can ruin relationships. Guilt can overcome us and really restrict our lives. And so people, Christian or non-Christian, there's, there's a whole industry of distraction and uh, therapies to try to get people to feel free from guilt so that they could function in life. Everyone wants to be free from guilt, including Christians. Have you ever sang as a Christian, my chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Christians, we sing that we have been set free from our sins. We've been set free from the chains of sins because of sin because of our Lord Jesus. And yet, if we're honest, even as Christians, we struggle with guilt, don't we? We still sin. I thought I'm free from sin, but yet here I am still sinning every day. I'm confronted with the darkness of my heart and the evil of my self-centeredness regularly. And I'm supposed to be set free from sin and from its guilt. That can be discouraging and deflating. To, to, to wrestle with present sin and know that there are future failures ahead that, ine that inevitably are going to come. That is discouraging and deflating, I would say, for me, even as a pastor. I'm supposed to be a pastor. I'm supposed to be preaching and growing. And yet, here I am wrestling with sin and not feeling like the chains are gone. And not feeling like I've been set free. And being discouraged by that. Feeling the hardness of my heart. Well, good news. The Lord Jesus wants us to experience the freedom from sin. The freedom from guilt. And not just about sin in the past forgiving us of past sin, the Lord wants us to experience freedom now, today, in our Christian life, even as we wrestle with sin. And he wants us to look forward to the future, even, know, even knowing that there are inevitably failures and sins ahead in our lives if God doesn't take us today. Even though we know that, God still wants us to live looking forward with confidence that the Lord Jesus will actually set us free. So here's the main point this morning. The main point if I could put it in a slogan and kind of play off of the words of Jesus a little bit here, you must run to Christ 
and the Christ will set you free. You must run to Christ, and this Christ will set you free. That's the main point. That's my main goal is that you'd run to him and find freedom, not just from the past, but even freedom as you engage with sin and guilt, even in the present, going into the future. So why run to Christ? Why go to Jesus for our solution and not to other things? Matthew gives us here in Matthew 9, 1 through 17, three reasons why we ought to run to Jesus Christ, okay? Three reasons why we ought to run passionately, enthusiastically, immediately to Jesus and experience Christ setting us free. Reason number one in verses one through eight. So we have three stories here, three vignettes of the Lord Jesus, and in each one we'll draw out a reason why we need to run to Jesus. Reason number one, because Jesus has authority to forgive your sins. If you're wrestling with sin and guilt, then Jesus is the, is the one who has the authority to forgive your sins and guilt. So you know the story. I just read it. But let me tell you, let me fill in some details from Mark, who also tells this story. So Jesus is teaching there in Capernaum, his hometown or his home base for his public ministry. And the house is packed because Jesus already has built a reputation around town and around the towns that he is a healer that he can heal people from sickness and that he's an effective teacher. And so Jesus has this magnetic charisma about him that people want to see him. So when he's teaching in a house much smaller than a room like this, you can imagine if the word got out here in Bellflower and Cerritos and Downey and Paramount and Compton that, that, that there was a healer in this area who was legitimately healing people and teaching very powerfully and he was meeting in some house somewhere, you could... You could guarantee you could be sure that that house would be packed. So this house is packed. Well, there are some friends who have a, a friend who is paralyzed. Let's say a quadriplegic. He might be a paraplegic, but so he can't walk. Maybe, he, maybe he's just paralyzed from the neck down. And so he's lying on a mat. He's lying on a mat. And so his friends say, hey, Jesus is in town. Let's go to him. So they put him on the mat. They take, everyone takes a corner and they lift this guy and they bring him to Jesus, to the house. Now the house is packed. So they're saying, excuse me, excuse me. Can we get through? And nobody wants to move. They're like sardines in this house, right? They're just packed. Nobody wants to move. They can't get to Jesus in the middle of the room. So they have an idea. Why don't we climb up and drop him from the roof? Maybe they'll move then. So they... Um, Presumably, one big guy puts, puts him on his shoulders and climbs up the ladder and the four of them get up on the roof and they start digging through the roofs, which are, you know, just dry dirt. So they, they would dig through the roof there, take off, well, take off the, the, the layer and then start digging through. And so as Jesus is teaching, they hear a sound and dirt starts to fall on people's heads. And all of a sudden, all of a, sudden a hole opens up and then four guys take this mat and this man, their friend on the mat, and they lower him on the heads of everybody. Well, people start to move now. Okay, so they move out of the way and the man is lowered there. And it says that Jesus sees their faith and he looks at the guy and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is strange. Jesus sees whose faith? Let's go look, look at the verse now. Look at verse two. The man brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. And then what does it say after that? Seeing what? Their faith, not his faith. Not the man on the mat only or exclusively. Seeing their faith, he told them 
Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now he saw their faith. What did they believe? What did these friends believe? Did they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man and fully God, truly God, truly man? Did they just know all the New Testament doctrines? Is that what they believed? No. What did they believe? That Jesus could do what? Heal their friend, right? That's what they believed. And Jesus sees their faith. And notice Jesus reacts to their faith. Not just the person's faith. Do you believe that when you bring people to Jesus, that Jesus will, can heal them or that Jesus can save them and Jesus can bless them? Do you believe that? If you do, guess what you're going to do with your friends who need Jesus? You're going to what? You're going to bring them to Jesus because you believe that Jesus can help them, right? And if you believe that, Jesus sees your belief and you can't deny the belief because how do you know that they believe? Because they brought him, right? I mean, they went through all the trouble of putting him on the roof and digging a hole in the roof to bring him down. Of course they believe. They're that motivated. They're that trusting that Jesus can do something. So one application here we could just say briefly as we continue is let us as Christians bring our friends to Jesus. We had one of our members recently send an email to the church and just say, hey, I'm hanging out with some non-Christian friends. Um, I'm bringing some of our church family to hang out too. Can you guys engage my, my non-Christian friends? Guess what that is? What, 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 is that, what is that family doing? What's that person doing, that member? They're saying, I want to bring these friends to Jesus. You guys are the body of Christ. Embody Jesus to them. Love them with the love of Christ because Christ can help them. That's bringing people to Jesus. Okay, so let us do that as well. Now, surprisingly, they brought this man to Jesus to, so that Jesus would do what? Heal the man. So they go through all this trouble, sweat, you know, just hot and just, you know, very inconvenienced. They drop this man in front of Jesus and they finally get him to Jesus. Jesus sees their faith and he's going to respond. They're like, yes, we got through. And Jesus says, your, son, your sins are forgiven. And the friends are like, what? We didn't bring him here for his sins to be forgiven. We brought him here so that he could what? So he could walk. I mean, yeah, that's cool. Praise God for forgiveness, you know. But Lord, like, we didn't bring him for that. We brought him here so he could walk. Sometimes we don't even know what we need, right? We, 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 need the, we want the small thing, and Jesus is going for the big thing. We want the small symptom healed, and Jesus goes for our heart. He goes for the root of the problem, not just the surface. It's like asking um, a teacher for help to pass a test and getting special tutoring in, in your senior year in high school, and you need this class to pass just so you could get into to apply and qualify the, for the college you want. And instead of that, somehow, miraculously, the teacher not only grants you a good grade, but says, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to help you with this test. I'm just going to give you all of the knowledge and the diploma or um, your, your degree already from your, your dream college. I mean, just granting all of that in one in one statement. And you're like, wow, I just asked for this one little thing, and you're actually giving me the big thing that I really need. In a similar way here, Jesus is giving what this man really needs, which is forgiveness of sins. Now, the scribes there who taught the Bible, the Old Testament, they didn't like what Jesus said, so they start mumbling under their breath. And what do they say? Man, this guy is what? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but who? God alone. Only God can forgive sins. Now, that's not technically true. I mean, even in the Old Testament, priests would declare forgiveness. But priests would declare forgiveness after you go through the, the sacrificial system and all the processes, processes that Moses had set up in the old covenant, the law covenant system. So you could declare forgiveness as a man, but you would only do it through the prescription that God gave in the system. But God can 
God is not bound by that system. God has the right to declare forgiveness um, bypassing the system, doesn't he? So here's Jesus. This man comes down, lowered on a, a mattress, right? He's lowered on the stretcher, and he, he's, he's lowered right there, and then Jesus just declares forgiveness, bypassing the whole Old Covenant system, bypassing the whole Law Covenant. And so they say, what? This guy isn't God. He can't do this. He can't just bypass the Old Covenant um, structures and grant forgiveness. But what does Jesus say? Verse 4, he, he confronts and refutes them. He said, perceiving their thoughts... And by the way, some people, I would just encourage you as you read through the New Testament and the Gospels, um, Jesus is God, but you don't have to read that into every single statement. So when it says Jesus perceiving his, their thoughts, you might say, oh, because, because he was God. And that might be true, but I would encourage you to think that he's, just, that he's just being perceptive. So for example, if I was in a group of Muslims, Muslim neighbors and friends, and I said, Jesus is the son of God, and I start hearing whispers, I already know what they're thinking. That God has no son. That's what just what Muslims teach. I don't need to be divine and I don't need to be omniscient to know that if I say Jesus is the son of God in a group of Muslims where they deny the sonship of Jesus as the son of God, that they're going to mumble and have a problem with that statement. So when Jesus says, I forgive you of your sins, he already knows that they're going to have a problem with it, right? So they start mumbling and start, you know, they start scowling and looking at each other and Jesus knows their thoughts. So he refutes them. And he says here in verse four, why are you thinking evil things in your heart? Now, it's not evil if a man is bypassing, bypassing God's word to illegitimately declare forgiveness. But Jesus calls it evil thoughts. Why is it evil? It's good to want to obey the Bible, right? Why is this evil? Not because the Bible's wrong, but because they got Jesus wrong. So Jesus says in verse 5, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, which is easier to say? without anyone contradicting you. Your sins are forgiven. If, if I say, get up and walk, and the guy doesn't get up and walk, then everyone starts laughing at you, right? You're a fake, you're phony, you got no power. It's easy to refute that. It's, it's harder for me to claim that I can have someone get up and walk because you could, you could test that right away. Can he get up and walk? Your sins are forgiven is a lot more um, theoretical and, and intangible. You can't just see that, right? So I declare, oh, your sins are forgiven. Well, were they forgiven? We don't know. Like, there's no counter up in heaven where you could say, oh, PJ's sin goes back to zero or something, you know? Like, there's just, there's no way of verifying that your sins are forgiven. So it's easier to say that. So why did Jesus say the easier one here instead of just saying, get up and walk? He tells us why. And here's, that's why this is the main point of, of our first point. Verse six, why did he say, why did he say your sins are forgiven? So that you may know what? So that you may know that the son of man has what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. There's the, there's the issue. Jesus goes this way rather than going straight for the healing because he wants to teach something. I am the son of man, Jesus says, and I have authority to forgive sins on earth. I can bypass the system. I am the son of man who has that authority. Now, when you say son of man, what does that mean, son of man? Ezekiel is called the son of man over and over again. But there's this messianic passage in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, and it says this. Daniel says in his vision, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So this son of man riding on a cloud is given power and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This son of man in Daniel's vision is going to be, is going to be the king of all nations. And so Jesus says here, the son of man has authority to forgive sins. I am that messianic king. Now, it's not clear there. They didn't know that verse. It wasn't probably the first verse that came to their minds. But we, looking back, can see that Jesus is the Son of Man, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he has authority to forgive sins. In Daniel 9, it actually is fulfilled in Israel as the Son of Man. But Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah is the representative of God's people, the nation. And so if only God can bypass the system to forgive sins, and Jesus can bypass the system to forgive sins, then Jesus is... God, right? Jesus is God. He's not blaspheming because he is God. He's a son of man, king of kings, lord of lords, ruler of the earth as man, but he's also God. This is a hint, a pointer to the fact that Jesus is God. And so if Jesus wasn't God, he'd be blaspheming, right? If I said I'm God right now here, you'd, um, you would excommunicate me if you're a healthy church, right? You have a members meeting right now. Call for an exceptional members meeting. You just need three families or 15% of the membership to do it. Call an exceptional members meeting and um, excommunicate me immediately if I start claiming that I am God. Because I'm a man and I'd be blaspheming. And so would Jesus if he wasn't God. But because he is, he's not blaspheming. So Jesus proves his authority. Well, he claims his authority. And then what happens? Look at verse 6. So he wants you to know his authority. He wants you to know who he is. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So now he goes for the harder statement. And what happens? Verse 7. So he got up and what? Went home. So does Jesus have the power to heal? Yes or no? And if Jesus has the power to heal, does he have the authority to forgive sins? Yes or no? Yes. Because he is God. And he is the son of man. This is offensive if Jesus isn't God. If I got in a fight with my spouse and was just being really rude and mean and selfish to her, which I do from time to time, um, and I sinned against her and was evil towards her and, and our relationship was cold and I was feeling guilty, and then you come up to me and say, you know what, PJ, you don't even need to ask Francis for forgiveness anymore. I forgive you. You guys, are, you guys are reconciled. She doesn't need to grant you forgiveness anymore. You guys are reconciled now because I forgive you of your sin against Francis. Francis would be like, what? No. It doesn't work like that. He didn't sin against you. He sinned against me. Only I can grant forgiveness for reconciliation in this relationship because he sinned against me. So it is with God. Only God can grant forgiveness for sins against God. And if Jesus is claiming that he has authority to forgive sins, then he's claiming that he's God. And so we need to recognize him. And so they recognize, they don't get it here, but look at verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to... Men. So they don't see Jesus here as God yet, and that's okay. Jesus is not just giving a full doctrinal lesson here, but he's pointing in that direction. Jesus has that authority. So what's the application for us, church family? Here's the application. If you're a Christian, member of this church, when you sin, who do you need to go to for forgiveness? God or the Son of Man who is? Jesus. Run to Jesus when you need forgiveness of your sins. He has authority to forgive you. Like I said earlier, bring your non for a church family, what does this mean? Bring each other to God. Gospelize each other and bring each other to God and to Jesus when we sin. We have a solution for guilt. Jesus. Amen. We have a God and a king who has the authority to forgive us of our sins. We don't need to wallow in guilt for one more second. You don't need to stay in guilt. 
You don't need to whip yourself in the back and feel guilty of yourself as if that pays for your, your evil and your sin. You can go to Jesus and he can forgive you of your sins. So let's bear each other's burdens. Let's bring each other to the Lord Jesus as these four friends, I'm not sure if it's four, as these friends brought this paralytic to Jesus on a stretcher. If you're not a Christian, my exhortation to you is exactly the same as to Christians. Go to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. He is the only one who has the authority to forgive you of your sins. Children, your greatest need is not your parents' approval. Your greatest need is for God to approve of you by forgiving your sins. So go to Jesus. Parents, your greatest need is not your children's approval or your children's future success. Your greatest need is God, and that comes through forgiveness of sins. If you're single, your greatest need is not a person who wants to marry you. If you're married, your greatest need is not a spouse who encourages and blesses you. If you're a worker, you don't ultimately need your boss to approve of you. If you're a student, you don't ultimately need good grades or your teachers or your peers to approve of you. If you're retired, you don't need to change the past or go back to the glory days. What we need is God to forgive us of our sins. We need God. And unforgiven sin is the barrier to God. And forgiven sin means we have access to enjoy all that God is for us in Jesus. If you're discouraged this morning, let me encourage you. God will forgive your sins. He is long-suffering. You might feel that God has as short a temper as you. That he, he can only tolerate you as long as, as much as you can tolerate others. God is not like you. He is kind. He is patient. He is forgiving. He's not a pushover. Don't get me wrong. He's not a pushover. But because of Christ and what he's done, which we'll talk about in the next point, he can forgive you. So go to him. You don't need to feel guilty for a certain amount of period before you go to him if you're discouraged. If you're ashamed, God will take you back right now. For our society, our message to the world, to our neighbors is this. The biggest problem in our country, in our society today, is not fill in the blank, whatever it is that the society says. The biggest problem in our society today is unforgiven sin before God. That we are damned and condemned before God rightly because of our sin and evil against him. That's the biggest problem in our nation, in our neighborhood. And Jesus has the authority to forgive that sin. So the good news is Jesus is able and authorized. God doesn't want us to be confused where to go, where to run when we sin. Run to Jesus. So again, the main point, you must run to the Christ and the Christ will set you free. Run to him because he has the authority to forgive your sins. But secondly, not only does he have the authority to forgive your sins, in this next section, verses 9 to 13, the second reason why you should run to Jesus is because Jesus came to, to call you. Jesus came to call you as a sinner. He came to call you to himself. Look at verse 9. And Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew. In Mark, he's called Levi. Levi, Matthew, same person, the apostle, I think the one who wrote this book. Um, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth and he said to him, follow me. And what did Matthew do? He got up and followed him. So here's Jesus calling a tax collector to be his disciples, to, to be his disciple, to follow him. Matthew gets up immediately and follows Jesus, just like the fisherman. Now the fisherman knew him before. Uh, Peter, James, John, 
Andrew, they, they had interacted with Jesus before, according to John chapter 1. Matthew, we're not told that he had any, interact, any interaction with Jesus. This is a cold turkey, just random, hey, get up and follow me. And, and Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. And then the next verse, we have an, a, a scene change where now Jesus is in Matthew's house. Now, it doesn't tell us here in Matthew that he's in Matthew's house. But according to the other writers, we know that Jesus is at Matthew's house. And what is he doing at Matthew's house in verse 10? Jesus was reclining at the table in the house with, with many what? Tax, tax collectors and sinners. Because they came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Now, these are presumably friends of who? Friends of Matthew. He's a tax collector. And so he invites his friends, tax collectors and sinners over to eat with Jesus. Matthew invited his friends. And Jesus, here's the, here's the point. Jesus not only calls tax collectors, Jesus feasts with the scandalous. Jesus feasts with the scandalous sinners of the world. Tax collectors were notorious. They were traitors. They were especially Jewish tax collectors. They were betraying their own nation to collect taxes for the oppressive government who was dominating and ruling oppressively over their nation. And not only that, not only were they betraying by working for the government in oppressing the people, they were even taking more money than they had to to get fat off their own wealth because they had the Roman authority to do so. So not only were they betraying their nation, they were fleecing their nation. They were taking advantage of their nation, their fellow neighbors, and they were getting rich off of it. They saw the oppression of Israel as an opportunity for personal gain. So people hated tax collectors. Not only that, it's not just tax collectors, it's also sinners. And here sinners is um, broad. It could refer to adulterers, thieves, murderers, criminals. So here's Jesus eating with the scandalous. That would be like, you know, pastors and um, staff and non-staff pastors, deacons, deaconesses, and uh, pastoral interns in our church, at least, when we have pastoral interns. It would be like a bunch of us from Bethany Baptist Church going to uh, the red light district and, and, uh, and having a meal with the sex traffickers who are preying on young girls and making money off of them and eating and feasting with them at their table. That's scandalous. Why are you associating with them? Why are you eating and drinking and hanging out with them as if everything is okay? So that's a natural question we would ask. And that's what they ask here. So look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's not a bad question. We're so quick to take the Take, you know, go against the Pharisees as if we wouldn't ask those same questions. You would ask, we would ask that question. We would ask that question if he was with the scandalous of our society. You know, if he was eating with the KKK, who are just trying really hard to push, you know, their agenda. That, that's not something that you just be like, oh, that's okay. You would ask questions, rightfully so. And so when Jesus heard this, what's his answer in verse 12? Now, when he heard this, Here's, here's Jesus' answer. He explains his motives and his heart. It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So we learn that God or Jesus cares for the, the sick. A doctor cares for the sick. So Jesus is not there to be sick with them. 
You know, they're spreading germs and, and getting each other sick. And Jesus, the doctor's not going there to get sick with them and wallow in their sickness. She's not going to the sinners and the rebellious and the scandalous to approve of their scandal. A doctor goes to the sick to what? To heal them. So Jesus doesn't hang out with the scandalous just for the sake of being scandalous himself. Jesus goes there on whose terms? On his terms. For whose agenda? His agenda. Not theirs. So, he, so don't get this wrong. He's not hanging out with the scandalous just to be risky and edgy. He's a doctor going among the sick to heal them. Amen. So Christians, we tend to either stay away from the sick, don't spread your germs on me, or just hang out with them and be edgy. And Jesus is neither. He doesn't hang out with them just to hang out with them and be edgy. He doesn't stay away from them because they're the sinners and we can't be seen with them because if people associate with me with them, then, then I'm going to be looked at with a bad reputation. He doesn't care about that. He wants to heal the sick. And as long as they're willing to, to, to eat with him, on his terms, with his love and his desire to heal them, then Jesus has a meal with them. I mean, Matthew got up to what? Follow Jesus, right? So presumably Matthew invited his friends to say, hey, I want you to meet this guy. I'm going to follow this guy. I think you guys should follow him too. Okay, let's go hang out. So it's not like it's just a free hangout. So we see that Jesus cares for the sick. A doctor cares for the sick. But we move on. There's something else here about Jesus' heart and motives in verse 13. Not only a doctor who cares for the sick, but verse 13, the first part of verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire what? Mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What does that mean? That's from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. In Hosea 6, God is lamenting how his nation, Israel, is not obeying him. They're obeying him in some things, but they don't really want God for God. So God is kind of lamenting here and mourning the fact that his people are rejecting him even as they obey some of his commands. So he says something like, I don't care about your sacrifices. I want mercy. Or if you're reading the Hosea 6.6 6 here in your CSB, I want faithful love. Now, it's not saying that I don't care about sacrifices. I don't care about my laws. It's not an absolute contrast. I don't care about your sacrifices. I care. He's like, if you're going to do the small thing, but you're not doing the big thing, who cares about your small thing, right? Who cares about your small thing if you're not doing the big thing? So here Jesus is saying, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. You can keep all of your rules, and rules, God's rules are meant to be kept. Don't get me wrong. But if you keep the little rules and you avoid the heart of God, his faithful love and mercy for sinners, why are we obeying God? To shine the light of who? Christ. So that sinners would be saved. If you're not even going to love the sinners and you just want to keep the rules without the whole point of keeping the rules to shine the light of Christ for the salvation of sinners, why are you keeping the rules? It makes no point to keep the rules without trying to do it so that you would shine for Christ so people could be saved. That's the point of keeping the rules, right? So why? So God's saying, I don't care about the rules if you, if you don't have the heart. Mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Faithful love not sacrifice. So when Jesus sees a room of scandalous sinners, his heart bleeds for them. His heart mourns for them. His heart desires that they would be saved. He doesn't look at them with disdain and self-righteousness. That's what Pharisees do. They look at them because they're better. They're holier than thou. 
But Jesus, who is holier than thou, right? I mean, if there's anyone who's actually holier than thou, it's Jesus, right? And yet the one who is actually holier than thou is with them, caring for them, dealing with their sin and bearing their burdens and hearing them out. And so God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And here Jesus is showing that he has the heart of God. That is portrayed in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. But not only that, not only do we see that he cares for the sick and he desires mercy, not sacrifice, we see why he came. Look at verse 13 again, the last part of verse 13. For I didn't come to what? To call what? The righteous. I came to call sinners. Here's why Jesus came, to call sinners. Now, is everyone a sinner, yes or no? Yes, apart from Jesus, everyone's a sinner. So who did Jesus come to call? Everyone. But he says, I didn't come to call the righteous. There is a group that Jesus is not actually calling. Not that he doesn't care about them, but he's not actually actively calling them at this point. Who is he not calling? Who is he not feasting with? At least in this, in this, um, in this exchange. The Pharisees, right? The Pharisees who are asking the question. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous. Now, we know Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. So you're like, Jesus, there is no righteous. That doesn't even make sense. Okay, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying here, those who think they're righteous, I have no message for them. Not that I don't have a message. I have my message to you is that you're not righteous. But if you don't want to hear that because you think you're righteous, I have, yeah, I can't help you. Not that I can't, like I'm unable, but I'm going to those who actually know that they're not righteous. I'm going to those who know they need me. I'm going to those who know that they're sinners. I'm going to those who know they are sick. Everyone's sick, says the doctor. You know, the doctor, for this doctor, everyone is sick, but some people think they're not sick. We have people like that, right, in, in physical health today who deny their sickness, who want to ignore it and not take care of their health and not go to the doctor when they need to go to the doctor. And a doctor says, well, I can't help you. I can't, I'm not going to put you in handcuffs and force you to come to a doctor's checkup and a doctor's visit. If you don't think you're sick, you don't think you need help, I can't help you. Right? I won't help you. I'm not going to force you to the doctor's office. In the same way, everyone's a sinner, but some people think they don't need God. They think they're righteous enough to not need Jesus the Savior. So Jesus comes and says, I came to call sinners. I came to save sinners. I came to call sinners. So if you know that you're a sinner this morning, Jesus says, I came to call you. I came to call you. So why should you run to Jesus? Because he came to call sinners and save them from their sins. Now, this whole thing about Jesus coming, I want to point to three things in Matthew about how Jesus came. So in, in Matthew one twenty one it says, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus came to save sinners. That's the big category. Jesus came to save sinners. How does Jesus come to save sinners? Let me just give you three um, quick things, or two, two quick things. Jesus came to, or, well, I'm sorry, three. Three ways that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to call sinners here, right? He came to call sinners to repentance. And then it says in Matthew 20, 28, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus comes to call sinners. Jesus comes to die for sinners. And then at the end in Matthew 28, 20, he says, go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations. How did Jesus save sinners? He sends. He comes to send his people to spread the gospel. So how does Jesus come to save sinners? He comes to call sinners. He comes to die for sinners. And he comes to send saved sinners to spread the message and disciple. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He calls them. He dies for them. And he sends them so that they might spread 
the gospel. Now let's focus on this, the central one just briefly before we move on because this is the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to die for our sins, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you're not a Christian, please just listen to this. And if you forget everything else, listen to this. Jesus came to die for your sins and rise from the dead. If you, would, if you will repent from your sins and trust in him. The offer is for you right now, but you have to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Now to, to do that, you need to understand that you're a sinner and that as a sinner, you're condemned before God. We're all sinners. We're all condemned before God. And sin is a big deal because God is holy. God is righteous and he created you. Whether you want to submit to him or not, he's still your creator and you still have to answer to him. And so we're damned for our sins, but God sent his son Jesus to die for us so that if we repent from our sins, turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, we would be saved. Jesus came to call sinners to salvation. And now I'm calling you, Jesus is calling you even through me right now. Jesus is calling you to trust in him. Jesus is calling you to turn from your sins. Jesus is calling you to call on him because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So please, if you're not a Christian, call on Jesus to save you. If you are a Christian, still rest in this. Jesus came to call you. You're still a sinner. You still need the doctor. You're still sick. So run to Jesus in your sickness. And church family, let us engage the lost and go out to where they are. Notice here, Jesus doesn't just say, I'll hang out with you if you come to my church gathering on Sunday and you eat lunch in our fellowship hall. And if you don't eat at my church building in our fellowship hall, I cannot hang out with you because you're such a sinner. That's not what Jesus does. Where does he eat with them? In their houses, on their turf, in their bars, in their places of, of, of socializing. That's where he is. Now, he, remember, he's not sinning with them, but he's there loving them and honoring God there. Amen. Brothers and sisters, Bellflower has 80,000 people. Southeast LA County has 1.3 million people. We are not going to reach them by having them. Look how many open, I mean, look how many empty chairs we have. For 80,000 people in Bellflower, really? Is this the only place they're going to hear the gospel? We need to be there in their homes with them, hanging out with them, them in our homes, sharing the gospel, eating with them. So brothers and sisters, as a church family, let us be outward facing. All true gospel Catholic churches, I mean Catholic as in universal, not Roman Catholic, all gospel universal churches seek to save sinners and bring them to Jesus. Here's the good news. Jesus is not only able to forgive you, that's point one. Jesus wants to forgive you. Jesus came to forgive you. He came to call you because God desires you. You know, some people have a problem, and I I get it because of their theology, but um, with... um, You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. That's a true statement. I mean, Jesus came for his bride. He didn't want to be in heaven without his bride. He came for them. God loves you. God wants to save you. Even if you're not a Christian, and maybe if you'll never be a Christian, that's a different kind of want, but God does want you to be saved. And for those who would be his, he powerfully opens their eyes and draws them to himself. But God wants you to be saved. He doesn't only just say, hey, I'm the one. He wants you. Okay, so you must run to Christ so that the Christ will set you free. He sets you free because he'll forgive your sins. He sets you free because he came to set you free. He came to call you. He came to die for you to set you free. And lastly, 
come or run to Jesus, not only because he forgives you or has the authority to forgive you and because he comes to save you because he wants to save you, but lastly, because Jesus brings, now this is going to be a weird way of saying it. I'm going to say it. It's not going to make sense. I'll explain it. Third reason, come to Jesus, run to Jesus, because Jesus brings us the new wine. There it is. Third reason, Jesus brings us the new wine. That's why you need to run to Jesus. Now, I love this point, so let's think about it from verses 14 to 17. So, and what, the question I want to answer here is, okay, PJ, I get it. Jesus forgives my sin. I get it. He calls me. He wants me to be saved. So um, all my past sin is forgiven, but I still struggle with sin today. I still wrestle with sin. I still wrestle with guilt. I had to ask my wife for forgiveness this week for sinning against her and just being so stubborn where my heart was so hard I couldn't even ask her for forgiveness when I knew I was wrong. I just was so stubborn. And I'm still wrestling with guilt. Not right now, I'm not, but I mean earlier this week when before we reconciled. That happens. Lord, how can I be free? I want to be free from this. My chains are gone. I've been set free, but I don't feel free. At least I did it on Wednesday and Tuesday this week. I want to feel it. What do I do? And Jesus says, well, I came to bring the new wine. So here's where freedom gets practical for today and ongoing Christian living. Let's think about it. Look at verse 14. So they, they come to Jesus, John's disciples now. So you had the scribes asking the first question. You had the, the Pharisees asking the second question and the second story. And now you have John's disciples asking this third question. They came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples what? They don't fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Good question. Now, in the Old Testament, there's only one time they were required to fast, and that's during the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Other than that, but the Pharisees had gotten to a pattern, at least some, where they would fast twice a week. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector praying, and he says, I fast twice a week. Obviously, John, John the Baptist disciples are fasting. So they're asking the question, not as enemies of Jesus, but hey, we're fasting. We're waiting for you. We're waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for the kingdom. We're fasting. The Old Testament tells us to fast at least sometimes. Why are your disciples not fasting? And listen to Jesus' answer. It's so profound here. It t- teaches us a lot about Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So what is he saying? Will they fast eventually? Yes, when? When the bridegroom is what? When the bridegroom is gone. But when the bridegroom is here, there is to be no what? No fasting. So so Jesus is saying, yes, when you guys were waiting for the kingdom to come, you should have been fasting. Because your fasting is a way of praying and focusing your prayer and longing for God's priorities in your life and in our world. So fasting is a way of really focusing on God and drawing near to God and, and praying to God that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so they're waiting for the kingdom. But guess what Jesus is saying? But guess what? The king is here. I'm right here. Like you don't need to pray for me to come because I'm right in front of you. The kingdom is here. So you're not wrong in what you're doing. You're just wrong and you don't understand who I am. You don't understand the significance of who I am. Now when I leave, because I will leave, when I leave, my disciples will, will fast. They will fast and they'll pray. So, brothers and sisters, guess what? The Bible doesn't command Christians today to fast. Just a short application here. But it's good to fast. You should fast for the second coming of Christ. You should, I mean, just a few things that Christians fast for. The second coming of Christ, for God to bring revival in our land, for sin to break sin in your life, wisdom for a big decision for you. The the churches in Acts fasted before they sent out missionaries. They fasted before they appointed elders to their church. 
Hopefully, if we appoint pastor, elder, overseers in our church this summer, Lord willing, if we do, maybe our church should do a church-wide fast. It's not a sin to not fast, but it's certainly something worth doing because we want Jesus to come back again. And while he's gone, we long for him, don't we? And so we fast. But at this point, with Jesus standing right in front of you, it makes no sense to fast. So here's what Jesus is saying. All of the Old Testament is true, but now that the Old Testament was pointing to me and I'm here, everything revolves around who? Me, Jesus is saying. I'm the game changer in the universe, in religion, in knowing God, in your life, in your religious practices. I'm the game changer. Everything revolves around me, Jesus is saying. I'm the king. I'm the bridegroom. Okay? So, that's why Jesus is central. Yahweh is the Old Testament bridegroom to marry Israel, and now Jesus is saying he's the bridegroom, kind of a pointer that he's God. Now, um, let's go to verses 16 and 17. Here's the new wine point that I want to make and encourage you with before we close. Last two verses, verse 16. No one patches an old garment with an unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes, it, makes the tear worse. And then no one puts new wine into an old wine skin, otherwise the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, you put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay, so what is he saying here? Where do you put the new wine? Into what? New wineskins and not old wineskins. When you have a new patch, what do you put it on? An old cloth or a new cloth? New. new. If you put it on an old, so if just in unshrunken cloth, if you have unshrunken um, clothes, and then when you wash them, they shrink, and if, if, if all the clothes there were shrinking every time, you, or not every time, but initially when you wash them, if you put... If you have a hole in your old shirt that is already shrunk, so it's not going to shrink anymore, it's already reached its limit, and then you put a patch on that that's new, when you wash it, what's going to happen to the patch? It's going to shrink and it's going to pull. And if it pulls, it's actually going to pull the shirt and it's going to make a bigger, it's going to make the tear worse. So you find you get washed patches that are already shrunken, they're not going to shrink anymore. Then you put that old patch on that on that old shirt, right? But if on a new one, on new. So new goes with new, old goes with old. Make sense? Okay, but then let's go to the new wine because I think this, is, this has more theological significance. So then you get new wine into new wineskin. Don't put in old wineskin. Now, wineskins were made of animal skins. You'd sew them together. And at initially, you know, um, you, you deodorize the, them and you clean them and you get this wineskin. When you put um, wine in there, well, at least at first, even now, if you I was explaining this to my kids this week, if you pull your skin, it's still somewhat flexible depending on your age, right? The, and your uh, health, too, in other ways, in other ways too. But, um, but I, I, you know, I, I was telling my kids, I was like, if, when I die, this skin's going to get hard, right? It's going to get hard, and it's going to become really, really hard, really hard because it's, it's not being nursed anymore. And so in a, in a similar way, um, when it gets hard, it can break. And so when you, 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 know, you make a wine skin, and it, once it hardens, if you put new wine in there and that new wine hasn't fermented yet and it ferments and the gases are releasing there in an old wineskin that's already hard and brittle, what's going to happen to that wineskin? It's going to burst and break. You, you lose a wineskin and you lose the wine. Every, you'll just lose it on all fronts. So you put new wine into new wineskins. And so that's Jesus' answer. Why, why don't they fast? Because we put new wine into new wineskins. You're thinking, okay, thank you, Lord Jesus. Um, not, not helpful, perhaps. And, and admittedly, in this text, that's all it says. Like, it, it just moves on to the next story. But I want to stop here before we close and give you some theological significance of what it means that Jesus brings the new wine in. Some people apply this. I think it's the right application, but I don't think it's the right core of the meaning. 
Some people apply this to say the church should keep changing its methods with the times. That's certainly true. I mean, if you just study church history, there was a time where Baptist, you know, um, there's sometimes you'll hear in churches like we've always done it this way. And that kind of becomes the mantra. That has always been a mantra, but the church has always changed. Like before, Baptists used to argue about having a baptistry in the building. Baptists used to say, we never have a baptistry in the building, so we should never put one in. But now, Baptist churches have it, so now we've always done it this way. But we haven't always done it this way. Churches change with, with the situations and the times. Whether, you know, before having a piano or an organ was like seen as really secular. And that was worldly, and now piano's fine, but drums aren't. And now drums are here, and then, you know, just... Like as time goes on, things change. And so some people take this to say new wine skins for new wine. That could be a valid application. That's not the core of the meaning, though. What's the core of the meaning here? New wine. Where, where do we see wine with Jesus tied with the word new? New covenant. Where? When? At the Lord's Supper. New, so you have the new covenant with wine, the fruit of the vine, at the Lord's Supper. And, that, you know, and, and Jesus says, this cup is the what? New what? New covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant. Now that, is coming, that word new covenant, that phrase, comes from Jeremiah 31 where God says, I will give a new covenant, not like the old Mosaic Israelic covenant. Not like the old Israelic covenant. I'm going to give a new Israelic covenant. Not like the old one I made when they came out of Egypt that they broke. But in this one, I'm going to put a new heart within them. I'm going to write my law in their heart. I'm going to forgive all of their sins and they're going to walk in my ways. The new Israelic covenant, new structures, new wine to represent the new structures. So why do we spend most of our time as a church ordering ourselves as a new covenant church and not an old covenant community? Because the old covenant was fulfilled in who? In Christ. And when he died for our sins and rose from the dead, he brought, he ushered in the new covenant which is why we're all priests. We don't have Levitical priests. We don't make sacrifices here daily or regularly. We don't, we don't I eat king crab legs once in a while. My, one of my favorite dishes. That would have been outlawed in the old covenant structures. In the old wineskin. But in the new wineskin, praise be to God, you can eat king crab legs. If, if you can afford to save all your money for one, one time a year, you know, or whatever the case. But the, the point here is that there are new structures for the new covenant. And Jesus, it's no, it's no um, coincidence that in the book of Matthew, Jesus mentions the church. The church? And he talks about church discipline in Matthew 18. And he gives the keys of the kingdom to the apostles and then to the church. And if you're reading Matthew, you're like, what is a church? It's the new wineskin for the new wine, the new covenant. It's a new covenant of Christ's life, death, and resurrection put in a new covenant structure so that you can learn to live by grace and fight your guilt with your church family in the new covenant over and over and over again. Why will Christ set us free? How does he set me free when I'm fighting my hard heart on Wednesday? Guess what? When I was fighting my hard hard heart and fighting with Francis, even though she didn't sin and I was the only one sinning, I knew I was going to come here on Sunday and I was going to see my new covenant family. And I knew people were going to ask me, how was my week? And I got that even on Saturday and Friday with different people. How was your week? How was, your, how, was, how was this week? How was Wednesday for you? And I knew that my new covenant family with a new covenant structure that God put in place was going to force me to either harden my heart more or receive the mercy of God. Amen. And by God's grace, we can receive mercy and not live in guilt. We don't have to hide. We don't have to just be forgiven and pass in. We can apply the gospel in our New Covenant church family every week, every Sunday, every time we interact with each other as we share life and share Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, 
I invite you into the celebration of God's family with the new wine. And guess what Jesus says? I'm not gonna drink this wine with you again until I drink it with you anew in the what? In the Father's kingdom. When Christ comes again, there's gonna be the marriage supper of the Lamb and we're gonna feast and celebrate and drink the new wine for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. It's gonna be great when Christ comes. That's what we look forward to. Even when we take the cup every Sunday, we look forward to the new covenant. And so the new, the new uh, consummation of the kingdom. And so if you're not a Christian, God is inviting you into his kingdom. He's inviting you into his new covenant family, the new Israelic covenant. If you're a Christian and you're not a member of a church, you need to join a new covenant church. It's not optional for you to just sit around churches and go to the ones you like whenever you like. You need to actually be part of this new covenant structure because God is giving you a new covenant family to help you walk with Jesus. If you're a member of this church, Christians, members of this church, enjoy and utilize your church family to grow you deeper in grace. Don't run from the church family. They're here to help you when you sin. Oftentimes, you know, we talk about um, the police and sometimes you like seeing the police, sometimes you don't like seeing the police, right? If you're going a little bit too fast on the freeway and you see a cop car behind you, what, what do you feel like? You're like, uh, try to just get off the brake a little bit, slow down. You're not like, praise God for the police because they're here to keep everyone safe on the road. You're not thinking that at that moment. Um, you're not thankful at that moment because you're the one who's guilty. Now, if you're getting mugged on a corner and people are attacking you and a police cop runs, or a, a cop car comes around the corner, are you thankful? You're absolutely thankful. You're praising God, right? Praise the Lord. And so the point here is um, we look at the church as if they're the, the cops who are just trying to get us when we're doing bad. So we got to hide our sin. No, we're, we're the ones getting beaten down by our sin and Satan. And the cop car comes around your church family to show you that God is here to save you. God is here to bless you. We're not, a, we're not here to burden you. We're here to serve you. That's what we're here to do. Okay, so let's enjoy. Let's confess our sins to one another as a church family. And let's celebrate the new wine to come. One very practical one, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the Lord's Supper at this church every Sunday. So I invite you, not, we're not doing it this morning, we're doing it in the evening. We rotate morning and evening. It's, I know it's Mother's Day, but it's also the Lord's Day. So what better way to celebrate the Lord's Day, this Mother's Day, than remembering the new wine and Christ bringing in the new covenant family. So we'll do that tonight at 5 p.m. But either way, think about the new wine and the new covenant structure as we take the Lord's Supper. So here's the good news. Jesus doesn't want you to just, he doesn't want to just free you from your past. He wants to give you a new covenant family and a new covenant wineskin, a new covenant structure so that you would apply the new covenant grace in your life again and again and again. So brothers, why should we run to Jesus, sisters? Why should we make our way to Christ as quickly as possible? Because he can forgive your sin. He calls you to salvation and he brings you the new wine. And yet, what do we do? We still sin, don't we? We still resist God's call. We still reject the new wine and the new wineskins. We still buck against God as I was earlier this week. And Jesus still comes and he still desires us and he still welcomes us. Why does he do it? Why does Jesus put up with us? Why? Because why does Jesus forgive our sins without blaspheming? Not because Jesus takes our sin lightly, but because Jesus took our sin fatally on the cross. That's why he can forgive our sin without blaspheming because Jesus takes our sin on himself. Why can Jesus call sinners to restoration? Because Jesus was called a sinner and he was considered a sinner on the cross. Not just by the people who thought he was a sinner, but God even treated him on the cross like he was a sinner. When he poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross in darkness, he was called a sinner by God so that Jesus can call you as a sinner to come to him. 
He bore the wrath of God in our place on the cross. And why can Jesus bring new wine and joyfully usher in this feast for us as stubborn sinners? Why can Jesus give us the new wine? Because Jesus was given the sour wine on the cross. Why can Jesus invite us to the feast of celebration and communion? Because Jesus was forsaken by the Father hanging on that cross to save us from our sins. So brothers, sisters, friends, run to Christ and the Christ will set you free. Habitually come to Christ, not just once in your life, not just every Sunday. Come to Christ regularly, daily. Make it a habit of your life. Every time you sin, don't be like Adam and Eve hiding when you sin and covering yourself. As soon as you sin, start shouting, God, where are you? Help, help, I sinned. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your parenting. Call out to the Father and seek him every time you sin. If you don't, you will be dominated by legitimate guilt in your life. You will be discouraged and deflated about sin that you can't seem to be freed from. And you will continue in your own strength. And when you continue in your, in your own strength, you will certainly lose. But if you habitually come to Christ and run to him again and again and again and again, you will be cleansed from your sin. You will be unburdened. You will be encouraged to keep on going. And you will not merely profess, but you will actually experience Christ's power and strength and joy and freedom in your life. Our chains are gone. We've been set free. Our God, our Savior, has ransomed us. And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. And we will celebrate this grace here with the communion every week and into eternity. So let me, let me close by quoting the amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and with the new wine skins, with the new wine, it's grace that will what? Lead me home. Let's pray. Father, help us to live in your grace, your amazing grace and love. We pray that you would help us to run to Jesus, who forgives us of sins, who comes to call us, and who brings in the new wine, in the new wine skins, so that we, we might walk in the freedom of your love and grace. We pray that you'd help us to walk in this way and walk in that way as a church family. For those who are considering joining our church and other Christians, we pray that they would find a church. For those who aren't Christian, we pray that they would come to know you as their father and then know a church family as brothers and sisters. Do this for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're gonna take time now. Um,